Taylor Swift is still bawling. <laughs> Hey, welcome to the Laravel Podcast. My name is Matt Stauffer, and I got two guys joining me. Guys, could you introduce yourselves? I'm Jeffrey Way. And I'm Taylor Otwell. AKA Tay Tay. Um, yes. So there's a lot of stuff that's been going on lately. Um, but one of the ones that had the most drama kind of in our immediate Twitter sphere is talking a little bit about events in controllers, which, uh, as we learned uh, from the Twitter discussions, is if you ever find fire event from a controller, which is the same as if you ever use a facade in controller or any any other such architecturally impure action, um, all hell will break loose and, you know, the apocalypse will come. So there's a lot of drama coming from both sides. Each side either feels very strongly that you're making too big of a deal or you know, the other side feeling like you should never do this and it's just a really bad decision and all kind of stuff. And so I just wanted to first, let's get like a quick introduction of like, what is this discussion really about? And then I want to hear you guys thoughts about this. So it, I want to maybe let me just kind of suggest, you know, what this might be about and then hear from you guys. Does this encapsulate it? So the, the, the trigger point here is if you're in a controller, um, how much do you have to refrain from doing things that are specifically connected to the, the framework or the architecture you're working in. In this particular circumstance, it's firing events. And the argument was when someone showed an example that showed someone in a controller firing an event, uh, people said, no, that's not where that's supposed to be happening. That's not architecturally pure. Is that an accurate representation of the two sides before we get started? Yeah, that's mostly how I interpreted it. Okay, so so what's the what's let's start with why wouldn't you? Well, there's, if I can start, there's a group of people who would say, okay, you never, ever, under no circumstances, fire an event from your controller. And the the idea behind that is your domain is responsible for uh, alerting the rest of your application as to things that have taken place. So you want that in your business logic, in your domain, and it's not the responsibility of the controller to fire these events. So from my point of view, it's like, okay, well, this is entirely dependent upon context and what you're building. And I got maybe a little bit snarky because it there's so much dogma in the PHP community at this point where it's like people, you know, some people were saying on Twitter, oh, please, for the love of God, do not encourage people to do not add conveniences where people can fire an event from a controller or do this in a controller. And you almost want to say like, oh, shut up. You know, we don't need to make everything as complex as possible. We don't need to like advocate these rules. And you know what? It's like we wonder why people have a tendency to over-engineer their applications. They they build an application that's 10,000 lines and they're they're adopting like every single design pattern you've ever seen in a book. And it's like, that's great for toy applications, but in real life, it ends up being really bad advice. People are so focused on talking about uh, dangerous things in the community. We, we bring this up on the podcast a lot. Oh, don't do that. It's dangerous. And it's like, from my point of view, the only thing that's actually dangerous is all of this dogma that just flies around where people tell you, no, you cannot fire an event from your controller or you go to hell when it's like, no, it, it depends completely on what you're building. And this is not really a new debate, right? Like I remember when I first came into CodeIgniter, um, people were debating what to put in controllers back then, like validation or blah, blah, blah. So putting X in a controller has been debated for like many years. 
and uh, still hotly being debated. It's also really too late to, you know, we've already added these these helpers to fire events from anywhere with this global event function. I think the event function is awesome, personally. Yeah, I use that constantly. It is it is hard because, like, me me and Chris Fidal were talking um, on Slack, and we, we coined this software nihilism term where it's really hard to define any right or wrong in software a lot of times on, like, a general scale because applications are so, so different and their, their sizes vary so, so much and kind of their goals and purposes are so different that attempting to define any kind of hard and fast rule as to what you can do, especially what you can do in a controller, is just so pointless that it's really just a fruitless argument. Yeah. I think uh, it's weird. I think in many ways the the PHP community, we're sort of like in our adolescent stage where suddenly everyone is is reading like the blue book and the red book and they're learning about these design principles and patterns and, and architecture styles. And it's like, I think just about everybody has a tendency to go overboard when you learn something new. I think that's just how it goes. When I was studying guitar, I was studying to be a studio musician and when i would be in high school i would learn about like augmented chords and all this these different styles of chords that you don't learn when you're a kid and of course from that point on i wanted to use augmented chords in every possible way i could (laughs) you know it's like you overdo it and then you learn no this is this is like a tool and sometimes you pull it out but most of the time you keep it you know but right now people want to just apply these these techniques to everything and then they want to force everyone to feel bad if they want to keep it simple uh, at the upcoming Laracon, this is one of the huge things i'm talking about is simple code things that i really believe now that maybe uh i didn't i don't know i didn't give enough value or weight a few years ago and it all comes back to to simplicity and you know what i've even noticed this with the laracast code base one interesting thing when you have a code base that you manage for like years is you you it's almost like you see all the different ways you thought about code over the years because you know as you you work on new things you adopt new ideas that maybe isn't reflected in what you did three years ago when you started working on the project it's like looking at the the dinosaur strata that you can tell that this is the dinosaur from this period. This is my code from this period, my code from that period. Yeah, exactly. You can kind of see like, oh, I was really into this at that time. And what I found, especially in the last year is everything I've been doing lately is taking some of the stuff I did two or three years ago and simplifying it. And you know what? It's better. It's much better saying, okay, you don't need a repository here. There's no reason for that to be here. Just simplify it. An eloquent call in your controller is fine. And you know, every time I would take those things where maybe I uh, over-engineered things and I just made it more basic, it's improved my code. I've always wondered also if this, I think I've mentioned before, I feel like PHP has a very kind of copy-paste culture where we really like as a community being able to copy and paste not only code but like practices and ideas and really solidify and like codify these laws and commandments and i don't know if that how that kind of fits into php or if that's more so in php than other languages but i remember like in net it felt like we experimented with architecture a lot more and in php people really want to define like the one true architecture and right now that is you know sort of domain driven design is what a lot of php bloggers are talking about as like the one true especially like the um what would it be called? The tactical patterns or whatever, whatever they call them. Um, that's like the one true way, you know, like command bus events, blah, blah, blah. 
But it, what I don't like about like turning that into a sort of Ten Commandments of PHP is that it really stifles people from experimenting with new ways of architecting applications. And someone, um, you know, someone could discover a really cool new technique for for architecting PHP applications. But if we're constantly kind of beating people over the head that this is how you should architect your application or this is how you should write your controllers, then it sort of stifles some of that innovation and exploration that people might otherwise uh, do. Yeah, absolutely. It's almost like people take take the these tech bibles that we have that were written in the 90s or the early 2000s and those are suddenly like the bible, you know, this is these are our commandments. This is what we do and you can't uh you can't go away from that. So the further you get away from what they were teaching in these books, the worse your code is. And man, I think that's once again to use that word dangerous, that's what I think is dangerous is encouraging people to to just blindly follow whatever this book says without understanding that many of those techniques were meant for big stuff. I always say this, they were meant for like banking applications, these massive things. They weren't meant for your little 20,000 line SaaS app, you know? They weren't even yeah. remotely meant for that. But then it gets applied to that, and then once again we wonder why uh, the code bases in, end up being massively over-engineered, where you can't even understand it. You shouldn't need to be a rocket scientist to understand how these pieces fit together, but so often it ends up turning out that way. You see this on Twitter a lot where like, someone will post some code snippet and someone will say, oh, I don't like that because SRP, single, repo- single responsibility principle. And then you say, like, how does this make my code worse? Like, is it harder to maintain? And it's sort of like a circular reasoning where it's like, because SRP, because SRP, because SRP. That's just like this broken record. And they sort of like can't get underneath the kind of superficial label and examine, like, is the code really any better or worse um, in terms of, you know, readability and maintainability, they just kind of keep repeating the same broken record, solid principles a lot. And the solid principles aren't really bad. It's just that a lot of times the application you're working on, it doesn't matter if you use them or not because the application is quite trivial. And most applications are pretty trivial, right? I mean, a lot of applications are mainly just sort of a glorified crud, even um, even things like Forge and Envoy are, are really not, um, are really pretty trivial. Um, some stuff gets updated in the database, a job fires off, and that's really it. We're not like doing international money transfers and stuff like that. So, you know, most apps we build are, are trivial enough, I think, where uh, you can fire an event in the controller and the world's not going to come crashing down on you. Yeah, and I think that's what people, for some reason, do not want to admit, is that at the end of the day, maybe most applications are just nice wrappers around CRUD. I, I think we've gotten to this phase where it's like, no, no, there's all of this business logic. And it's like, no, let's be honest. People say on Twitter, oh, the majority of applications, you need to fire events from your domain. No, the majority of applications are actually pretty basic. The majority of them are blogs and little services and little internal apps that will never be seen by the public ever. They're pretty simple things. Yes, if you're building some massive thing where you talk about a million lines of code, Obviously, the rules are going to be a little different for you than they are for most people. But let's remember what the majority actually is. The majority is fairly simple stuff. We don't need to make it more complex. Yeah, DHH had some great stuff about this, too, where he talks about how programmers are are very hesitant to admit that they're not, you know, their program is not a special snowflake and that maybe they can just use a typical um you know, model view controller paradigm. They don't need all this special um, 
architecture around it. And it's very hard for a lot of programmers to admit that. And you you see this manifested in a lot of different ways, right? Like a lot, you see that in the whole kind of no framework crowd where it's very hard for them to admit that they could just use a framework and their life would be easier. They have to roll their own out of components every time because, um, you know, they want to be that special snowflake, so to speak. And um, I don't know, it, it manifests itself in a lot of different ways. Shots fired. But one thing it does show that I think is it can be a little scary is you have a very we've talked about this before you have a very small group of people who have an unbelievably huge level of influence over the rest of the community. You really realize that. So you want to think like, oh, the PHP population is thousands and thousands and thousands of people. But, you know, really, it's like a 100 people at the top who are recommending this, and then everyone else, because we're all just desperately trying to figure out how to do this stuff. So everybody else just kind of eats it up, and they assume, oh, this is the way I'm supposed to be doing it, when the reality is, so often the people at the top, and you know, I could include all three of us in this, we don't necessarily always give the best advice. And the same is true for all the other people speaking at uh, conferences and such. We're all trying to figure it out, but when you give a small percentage of people this massive level of influence, you know, it can cascade down pretty quickly. And I, I think what what you guys have said up till now is really important in this, which is the answer to everything is always it depends. And what we can tend to do, especially when you have that level of influence and you're around a lot of people who think the way you do, and especially if you tend to do a particular type of work, if you tend to work in massive enterprise applications with 50 developers, and, you know, it's it's number developers, it's the type of risk constraints on your code, it's the goals of your code, it's number, all these pieces can influence you in one direction or another, you tend to think, hey, everybody has the same context that I do. And then you tend to teach in that same kind of way. And whether that context is, you know, quick, scrappy, lean startup, or massive enterprise or something else, you tend to kind of teach in that way. And I think there's there's a problem on both sides, both on us as teachers to say, well, yeah, you've got to do it this way when clearly there's lots of nuance in people's situations. And also on the other side, for example, you see someone who you respect for probably good reason, who's really excited about something, and you assume that means that should be the case in your code. You know, one of the things I love about doing dev discussions with Sean McCool is that he does stuff and he works in contexts that have nothing, no overlap with mine. So he does a lot of, and he's also just always trying to learn something new. Right. So like half of the stuff he does, I'm literally never going to do. It's fun talking to him about it, but I get to talk to him about it with a specifically constrained context of I'm doing this because it's challenging my brain, not because it's necessarily actually going to be the right answer for the thing I'm working in right now. But if you don't come to it with that kind of preconception, then you get a lot of the things we're talking about here. People prescribing things as if they're true for everybody. People hearing somebody else talking about something and assuming that they must apply it to theirs. I think one of the biggest issue comes from not just when those little accidental things happen where, oh, well, that person's doing it, I must do it. But when somebody straight out says, no, don't do this. No, don't do that. Because, you know, I have this great level of knowledge and thou shalt not. I mean, we all need to just stop, step back and realize just because I'm extremely excited about something doesn't mean that it's actually going to be the right thing for everybody else around me. This is something I, I deal with at uh, Laracast.com a lot. Somebody will say, well, hey, you talk about simplicity, but then I see this video where you talked about a command bus, and that's not simple. And it's like, it's it's sometimes hard to illustrate that, yeah, it's good to learn all of this new stuff. There's no way that you'll be a worse developer for learning about new things. But the um, the analogy I always use is like tools working around the house. You know what? In, in my garage, I had tons of tools. But most of the tools I just never touch. But in the kitchen, in one of the drawers, I have a screwdriver and a hammer because the huge majority of the time, those are the tools I need. 
But it's good to know in like some situations, it is cool to, to use a command bus. You know, maybe that's exactly what you need there. But most of the time, it can sit in the garage because you don't need it. And that, that's one of the most difficult things for me to illustrate is, is knowing this is good to learn, but it's, it's probably not something you're going to apply every single day. And that's perfectly okay. Yeah, it's a great point about the tools. You should want to have those tools available, but that just because you have it available doesn't mean you should use it. And it's the whole thing like when you got a hammer, everything looks like a nail or whatever. I think that's what it is. But like it's in the inverse though, like 90, 95% of your tools or of your projects are going to be solved by a hammer or a screw, you know, a Phillips head screwdriver. But when you come across a project that is actually better solved by you know, whatever torque wrench and you try to use your hammer on it, it's going to be a really, that is not the simplest solution because it's not going to, you know, it's not going to be effective or whatever. So, all right. Oh, um, also I wanted to clarify. I mean, I know we're already 15 minutes into it, but if anybody's not familiar with a lot of these terms, like the business logic and the domain that we've been talking about, um, the, the really, 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 really high level, um, version of this is basically imagine your code being separated into some, basically the code that represents, the actual logic of your application. So we call it business logic because it's a logic that represents the needs of the business that you're serving. But that's that code. And so if you're in PHP, it's probably going to be a whole bunch of PHP classes that are, you know, quote unquote, or in theory, uh, separated from the controller versus the stuff that actually is kind of the plumbing between whether it's HTTP requests or validation, whatever. And in theory, the more pure your application is, the more the particular implementation details, whether it's framework review or whatever it ends up being, are separated from the business logic, which is the representation of the entities in your business or whatever. So when talking about those, a lot of these kind of architectural purity conversations say those should be entirely separate except for tiny little strands of, you know, event or listen, you know, events or commands or whatever. And when you're talking less about the purity, what often the complaints they're making are your, you know, business logic and your application logic or your framework logic or code or whatever are too tightly constrained. So that's what those kind of phrases mean in a very, very, very high level way. So, all right. So we um, we talked a little bit last week, um, just among the three of us, about um, Browserify. And uh, Taylor, I know you've been getting out into that a little bit. And I feel like you you hit like a, you crossed a hill or you crossed a, a whatever on that. So tell me about Browserify. Why are you excited about it right now, Taylor? So I, di- I did learn about Browserify. But first, I think what helped me understand Browserify was I read this really good um kind of blog post, which I'll put in the show notes for the podcast about how node uh, modules work with the whole module.exports type thing. And that really clarified a lot for me about JavaScript modules because I, I was totally in the dark about that. I was just lost, you know, that dog meme at the keyboard about JavaScript modules. But once I understood those, Browserify made a lot more sense. And then I realized that, you know, it's basically just reading my code and it finds those require statements and it's building out the JavaScript that it needs to, to make all that work. Um, so it's really cool. Um, Eric Barnes told me he kind of thinks about them like um, import statements in PHP, um, which they're a little bit different than that since they actually return you a value. But it, it is it is a really cool thing. And what's cool about it is now that I'm using Browserify or when I use Browserify, um, I don't really have to mess with that whole um, concatenating scripts manually, like in a big array in my gulp file, since Browserify is automatically just pulling in whatever I require in my JavaScript. So that aspect is really cool. And then also, um, I also toyed around with how I was installing JavaScript was just sort of like pulling down the libraries and putting them in my public directory or whatever. 
But once I kind of grokked Browserify, I pulled some in with NPM and then just required them in my JavaScript. So it's all just, it feels a lot cleaner because I can just do like NPM require view or whatever and then required in my script and then Browserify loads it all up and brings in the necessary code and it feels all magical and fluffy and nice. So I'm really liking it so far. So I'll probably try it on my next, uh, on my next hack project. So it seems really cool. A lot of people on the Laracast forums will bring up, like, well, why is that so much better than, like you said, within your, your gulp file, just having a list of uh, files that you want to concatenate, and then you're still serving up one file and you get the same benefit. But uh, the answer is, well, no, that's not exactly true. It's fine for small stuff again, but then what you what you realize once you have a bunch of JavaScript files is like, well, well, this file is dependent upon that one, so I need to make sure no matter what, this file is always imported before that other script. And then this one, well, this depends upon that, so I need to make sure that one always... And then very quickly, it just gets kind of confusing because it's all in the global space. So with Browserify, there's huge benefits. You know, there's the the idea that you can use these or these packages within the browser. You could never do that before. Browserify makes that doable. But also, all you have to do in a file is just kind of state what it requires. What do I depend upon in order to work? And then behind the scenes, once you bundle everything up, Browserify will make sure that everything is concatenated in the proper order and that you have access to everything. So you never, again, need to worry about making sure that you always reference this script before this script. Oh, this script is going to use Stripe, so I need to make sure that I reference uh, this other Stripe file first. You know, you never have to worry about that anymore. Just state your dependency. You know, and this makes it much more like a programming language, which is great. Yeah, if you've ever used um, like Bower and then Gulp files to concatenate it, you've experienced the pain that comes from having to figure out exactly which files you're supposed to be including. And then you've got this just long list of dependencies that are like, you know, navigating up and down directory trees and they've got like version numbers in the names and your Gulp files messy and you upgrade something, you got to go back. It's it's there's there's no way that that's a better experience than just being able to say require thing up at the top. It sounds what I heard you say. I don't know if you said it on purpose. Was like you write your script and then you write your dependencies up top. Of course, you also need to go, Adam. You know, uh, do npm require. Is there? Is this just stupid to ask? But is there a thing like where you could just say like add all the packages that are required at the top of the script into um into my package.json too? I know that'd be magical, but that would be kind of cool. Not that I know of. Well, you know, in my free time. Sort of like the event service provider where you run a command and it just scans that file and it's like, all right, I'm going to just generate these files. Yeah. That would be cool. I have no idea if anything like that exists. In typical JavaScript fashion, as soon as I tweeted that I I was happy I finally had learned about module exports and browser files, someone tweets me back and says, you should use Webpack. And I'm like, no. <laughs> it's like, let me live in my browser if I happy place for five minutes before I have to use something better. <laughs> It's funny. I thought what you were going to say is because every single time I tweet anything, um, I get like 15 spam accounts that all they're like Angular JS jobs, Angular JS hot news. Angular. So if you have the word Angular in your tweet anywhere, you get lots of lots of love. Um, so so we, I mean, we did the quick intro before, but so Browserify, as you guys can tell, is for JavaScript and is for pulling in JavaScript dependencies in a, a, an automated way. It's like a lot of the AMD loaders and require JS and stuff in the past, but it's a much more modern version. So. One of the things we talked about being a dream was something that worked that simply, but for other front-end assets. So note, you know, we just compared Browserify to Bower, right? But the thing is, Bower is also bringing in, you know, CSS and HTML, what other assets that these front-end packages are going to deliver. Like, for example, if you're doing jQuery UI, right now, probably forever, Browserify is just bringing in the JavaScript asset of it, aspect of it. So if you're bringing in some dependency, like, let's say, jQuery UI, and you also need the CSS, 
you are still responsible for doing some kind of build tool, build script, whatever step that's going to take those CSS files and get them to your public directory. But this handles all the JavaScript for you. So, And the nice thing is if you're using Elixir, we have Browserify support built right in. So you can just say mix.browserify and then, of course, pass it the name of your file and everything's all ready to go. So you don't even really have to worry about pulling in the right packages to even use Browserify. It's pretty much all ready to go if you're using Elixir. Yeah, and to expand upon that, what's really cool is, especially for using Browserify, yes, you can write a task yourself, but man, it sucks. Like you have to, you have to do all this research to figure out how to how to call it, and then you have to figure out like, well, usually you need these what they would call transformations. So like, I want to transform this, and I want to be able to write Babel, so it'll compile through Babel. But then there's also things like if you're using Browserify, uh, it's it's more performant if you use this little tool called Watchify where it'll just keep an eye on just the single file that has changed and only update that portion rather than just rerunning um, the bundler for every single save, which makes it pretty slow after a while. So it takes care of that. It takes care of Babel. It takes, um, there's another one I pull in called Partialify that this is given to you out of the box. And that's where it's like, imagine you have a, a view component and you want to reference a template. Well, you, you have a couple ways to do that. One, you could just use like a, a query selector like, um, you know, document.getElementById, and then you just reference some script in your HTML. You could do that. Uh, another one would be, well, you have ECMAScript 6, so you can just use, like, the, the, the new inline templating where you just put the HTML directly in the file. Or because it pulls in mix.browserify, because it pulls in uh, something called partialify, you can actually require HTML files, and you can't do that normally. But because we pull that in, if you wanted to say require foo.template.html, it'll just go ahead and pull that template in for you. So all of this stuff is just given to you out of the box. You type one line of code, and it just works. Cool. So uh, that's fantastic. I love Browserify. I've been using it my last couple of projects, and it's wonderful. Um, and we're out of time. So one last thing. <laughs> the, the big discussion of the day, of the weekend, has been... Uh, our friend Tay-Tay, not Tay-Tay of the Otwells, but Tay-Tay of the Swifts, Taylor Swift. Um, so basically, the the short version of this is um, Taylor Swift. So Apple Music is coming out soon. Apple Music gives everybody a free three-month trial. And the original pitch for Apple Music was that for the free three-month three trial, um, all those listens that happen, nobody gets any money from it. So Apple's basically in the free trial, and the musicians and everything don't make any money. So Taylor Swift wrote an article saying, hey, look, I got plenty of money, but this is not okay. Um, it's not really a big deal for me. She even said something like, I'm not being a diva. I've already, I'm already doing fine. I'm talking about all the artists that are struggling and to be able to go through three months where they basically don't make any money. Like that's really tough. Right. Um, so you guys should continue paying money during that three month period. And there was just a massive hullabaloo about how selfish she is or how great she is or whatever. So a new article came out this morning where there's some change in the way Apple's doing it. It's not exactly hundred percent payment, but they're at least paying out some money. So that groundwork having been laid how do you guys feel about this what i think people don't understand is you know when people read that i think for for whatever reason their immediate reaction is just to say oh she she's a rich millionaire how dare she complain about it and it's like well here's the reality she probably will make a lot more money because she's the biggest artist on the planet she'll make more money if it's not on spotify for the first few months of her release that way people actually have to buy it on itunes that is true but the main the main point is, like, she's speaking up for people that can't speak for themselves. I actually got to grow up in the in the music industry. Both of my parents were were professional songwriters in Nashville, and so I feel like I got a, a unique perspective on how 
um, they were affected by things like Napster and all of this. It had a massive effect on them. Really, at the end of the day, it probably was for the best. You know, the, the tools we have now, like Spotify and Apple Music, it's amazing, you know. So things do have to change. But then at the same time, you have to remember, CDs used to sell for $14.99, and now you get the entire sum of all music ever for $9.99 a month. In that process, there's going to be a group of people who completely get screwed. And when everyone says, oh, stop complaining, music should be free, you should make your money off the touring, it completely forgets that, okay, that's great for the band. That's probably true for the band. What about the engineers? What about the producers? What about the people who actually write the songs who do not make a lot of money? These people are struggling. My parents had a lot of success, and they still struggled because, let's say you get one top ten hit or something on the radio. Okay, well, that's probably like one hit after a few years of co-writing. That's just how it goes in that industry. So they get some success, and that goes to paying back their publishers. That goes to, you know, paying off the debt because you've been living three years trying to to make it work like this. So it's it's a very tough industry, and it ends up where the songwriters or the engineers or the musicians get basically .0001 per stream on a service like Spotify. They make almost no money, so you can't expect them not to complain about this. So yeah, talk about touring, that's great, but also remember there's a massive number of people who contribute to an album, and they are really getting screwed. And you can't just say go on tour because that doesn't really help them at all. Taylor Swift is still bawling. <laughs> Even if you ignore everything Jeffrey's talking about with the people behind the scenes, it's just like such lame business on Apple's part to just like give away all these people's music and never pay them for it. That just seems really lame. Even if you ignore everything else. So I'm glad they, um, they're actually going to pay out some money. Yeah. The streaming model in general has been pretty, I mean, yes, it's exciting for discovery, but it's not, it, it's not long-term sustainable because it doesn't support the entire music industry well enough for it to live as it does. And I think a lot of people hear someone like me say that and they're like, Oh, you're just defending the labels, blah, blah, blah. Well, no, the labels are totally screwed up and terrible all kind of stuff. But you look at all sorts of artists who aren't through major labels. Like Derek Webb is this guy who basically runs, he runs a site called noise trade, which is basically trying to get exposure to people through alternative methods where it's not the old school method, but it's also not streaming. And he's one of the biggest anti Spotify people ever. And it's not because it competes with his, it's because he and his music our artists, artists are basically not making any money off it. And he's, he made one of those, you know, we're making zero, 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 one cents of stream charts and generated it. The, the artists who understand the industry and especially people who don't have a voice, but especially the artists who, who don't understand it, all of them are consistently basically saying streaming is great for discovery. Streaming is terrible for actually long-term sustainability and for us being able to make the money we need to make. So people are like, well, I've seen you share an audio link. Yes, I use audio for discovery. And then if I like the album, I buy it so that I can support the artists. And yes, I try to buy the, the means of buying the album that is most beneficial to the artist. So if I can bypass labels in any way, shape or form, I absolutely will. You know, the labels are not any less terrible as a result of the situation. But there's, you know, you can't just say, well, labels are terrible and therefore I want my music for free. You know, that's there's there's just an entitlement that that us as like a grown up with Napster generation have that is really kind of out of sync with reality. And then like, we're all we're all the ones who are like saying, oh, well, try and, you know, try and take the way you treat web developers and treat some other industry that way. And then we yes. make this little hilarious thing. Well, think about how you're treating the people who create the music that you're consuming, dear web developer, and try and apply that to yourself. And imagine if your clients were actually looking at you in the same way that you're looking at the artists. And then hopefully, 
it will help you realize what's going on here. So anyway, opinions, opinions, opinions around here. All right, guys. Well, I think that's going to cut it for today. As always, it's a total pleasure talking to you. And um, until until next time, uh, Tay Tay's a baller. <laughs> <laughs>